Good morning. I'm going to start out by reading a scripture. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So our text this morning is going to be in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 21 through 40. 21 through 40 in Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, 21 through 40. I'm going to read through our text and then we'll pray and get started. And when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And the sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God And continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And I'm going to stop there. I said through 40, but we're going to go through 38. Father, let's come to you this morning and uh, ask for your grace as we open up this text. I I ask that you speak through me. Help us to, to 
see the source of true freedom. Help us to see with the eyes of faith this morning. Help us to see your salvation as Simeon did. Lord, we need your grace. I need your grace. Lord, glorify yourself in our worship and in our study today. We thank you for every good thing. In Jesus' name, amen. The name of this sermon is True Freedom. True Freedom. Let's look at verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, we know what we're talking about, that Jesus has been born and, and now the Jews would circumcise on the eighth day. And so this is the playing out of that text. And this circumcision was originally given as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham in Genesis 17:12, And then it was incorporated into the law of Moses as the outward sign of membership in the covenant community. So I'm going to flip over to Leviticus 12. This is where it's incorporated into the law. Leviticus 12.3. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And they called him Jesus. That was his name at his circumcision. And if you remember in Matthew chapter 1 where um, Joseph had seen the vision because he was wondering whether he should take Mary as his wife. And, and the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said, you shall... You should take her as your wife. Don't be afraid to do that because the child in her was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. That would be his name. Let's look at verse 22. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So as we just read back in Leviticus 12, when a woman gave birth to a child, she was considered to be ceremonially unclean. And she couldn't touch anything holy. I mean, you know, when you, when you, if you've ever been around a childbirth and you know there's a lot of hemorrhaging, there is a lot of damage, there is a time of recovery and recuperation. And 
a mother is considered unclean after she gives birth and she couldn't touch anything holy. She couldn't enter the sanctuary until the prescribed period of time had elapsed. So I'm going to go back to Leviticus 12 and, and elaborate a little bit more on that. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing or enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. If she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for sixty-six days. When the days of her purification are completed, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. So, 33 days, that's how long... So we know that whenever Jesus went to the temple, he was 33 days old. That's what that text told us. And that was Mary's time of purification. When it had passed, she and Joseph immediately take Jesus, and they take the six-mile journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to present him to God in the temple, because that's what the law calls for. Let's look at verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. We just read um, from Leviticus. Now I'm going to go back to Exodus and give some background on why every firstborn male is declared holy to the Lord in Israel. I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 13. Verses 1 and 2, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. And then 11 and 12, Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. And then verses 14 and 15. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, that every firstborn of my sons I redeem. 
So can you see why Luke is using this terminology, why he is showing this and what this picture is of? Jesus coming to the temple and being presented to the temple when God redeemed Israel, when he brought them out of slavery and bondage and he brought them to freedom, he did so through the death of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. And because of that, so that they would remember that, The firstborn animals were sacrificed and the firstborn male children were brought to the Lord and presented to Him. Their lives were dedicated to the Lord. Now listen to what Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1.15. Jesus... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, the true firstborn of all creation who would die. He's going to die as a sacrifice under the judicial wrath of God in order to free all of his people from their bondage to sin. This is what we're looking at. This is the picture that Luke is showing us. And he comes to the temple. He's presented to God. This is who he is. And in verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is indicative of the poverty of Mary and Joseph. And it also indicates that they hadn't yet been visited by the Magi. For those of you that have watched any Christmas movies. And you know that first night they're in the stable and here come the Magi riding in on their camels and they present the gifts. That's not the way it went. The Magi came later. It may have been up to two years later, but they hadn't received those gifts yet. And Mary and Joseph were very poor. And what we have here with the turtle doves and the pigeons, instead of having the lamb, what we have is a poor person's offering. This is the offering that you would bring if you didn't have, if you couldn't bring anything else. And this is part of the sign of Jesus identifying himself with his people, with the least of his people. He humbled himself, and this is just another aspect of his humbling. Um, But something we have to understand here, this is all done according to the law. Jesus submitted himself to the law, but you need to understand that the law had no claim on Jesus. When we're born, all of us, descendants of Adam, the law has a claim on us because we are transgressors of the law. We're born under the law and we're born, we have imputed sin. It comes to us from Adam because Adam sinned and we all sinned in him. That's what the Bible says. And as soon as we're morally capable of it, we sin because that's who we are. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. But Jesus was not He was pure and perfect. He didn't need a covenant with God. See, this is all of this rituals that we're talking about puts put would put the Israelites in covenant with God. This was part of the law. 
When we hear the law, we think about the Ten Commandments. Well, there's a lot more to the law than the Ten Commandments. The whole first five books of the Bible are called the law or the Torah, the law of Moses. But all of the system, all of this Hebrew Jewish system and religion is the law and it's a covenant. And we don't, we, we need to understand that Jesus didn't need this covenant. He didn't need it. He was morally perfect. And he was righteous apart from the law. Paul talks about in that in Romans 3 that the, the righteousness of God apart from the law has appeared to us and it appeared to us in Christ. Galatians 5.3 tells us that a person who submits to circumcision, which Jesus did, is obligating themselves to keep the whole law. Now keep in mind that Jesus... The law didn't have any claim on him. He didn't need this, but he obligated himself to keep the whole law. James 2.10 tells us that if you keep the whole law and then you stumble in one point, then you're guilty of breaking it all. So that's why the law is a curse. It's a curse to us because we're going to stumble in a lot more than one point. It's a curse. But Jesus, who this curse didn't have any hold on, He comes and submits himself to it. Peter calls this curse in Acts 15.10 a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But he continues on down in verse 11 in Acts 15 and he says, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Talking about Gentiles who have become believers. Now, do you understand what Peter's saying there? He's saying that the law never saved anyone. That's what he's saying. It was a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. It did never save anybody, and it wasn't meant to save anyone. Jesus came. At the fullness of time, He came. To be the substitute for his people, Jew and Gentile. There's only one way that anyone has ever been saved from the fall of man in Genesis 3. And it's looking to God's provision in Christ. Those in the Old Testament were looking forward that were saints. They weren't saved by the law. They were not. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in We say Christ alone because the reason why we use the term Christ is because that is the Greek word for Messiah. I just recently listened to a lecture series that I really enjoyed. I'm going to go back and listen to it again. I did it while I was working, so I wasn't able to take notes. But but some of the things in that, one thing that really struck out, the professor um, suggested that whenever you're reading the Bible or you're speaking and you start to say Jesus Christ, say Jesus the Messiah. Say it in your mind. Because that connects you to the Old Testament. Most people, not most, but many people think Christ is Jesus' last name. That's not the way it is. Christ is a descriptor. And it is just 
the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. The Christ or Messiah is telling us who he is. He's the Messiah. What's a Messiah do? A Messiah comes to rescue, to set free. It's not a name. It's who he is and what he does. He is the Messiah who sets his people free. He delivers them from their sin, which has them enslaved. He delivers them from slavery. Jesus identified himself as a Jew and a descendant of David. He voluntarily submitted to the law in order to fulfill it and to liberate or set free his people from the curse of the law forever. You know the old hymn, Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled and there is remission. I don't know how you sing that. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. And it came in the person of Christ. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So when Jesus says, I am the door, or I'm the way, or I'm the gate, he's not speaking in metaphors. We don't come to God apart from him. He's the only all-sufficient high priest. He fulfills the old covenant on behalf of his people, and he made it obsolete, according to Hebrews 8.13. And he inaugurated the new covenant in his own blood. We are not living under the old covenant with a new administration. We're not. That's why we're not Presbyterian here. Let me read you something from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Never mind. We're going to skip 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 25. And there was a man. So, so we've got this. Jesus, this one, this Messiah, he's come into the temple to be presented in the temple. And so that's where we're at in verse 25. And there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And he's looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's a lot in that verse, isn't there? Well, we'll start with his name. This man, his name is Simeon. Simeon means the Lord hears or hearing the Lord. And you know, either one of those would work with Simeon. He heard the Lord, and he listened. But the Lord listened to him, too. The Lord heard Simeon's prayers because Simeon is looking for the consolation of Israel. So his name works either way. But it means you could translate it either the Lord hears or hearing the Lord. And it says he's righteous and devout. What's that mean? He's an Old Testament saint. Jesus has not made atonement for the sins of his people yet. So Simeon is from the Old Testament. But what's he looking to? Why is he considered to be righteous and devout? Does it say he's righteous and devout because he kept the law? Because he followed the Ten Commandments or he never sinned? That's not what it says, does it? It says he's looking for the consolation of Israel. He's righteous and he's, he's reckoned to be righteous by faith, just like we are, just like Abraham was. 
looking to God's provision. He's looking to Christ. He's looking to the Messiah by faith. And he's waiting on his sudden appearance in the temple. I'm going to read you a passage from Malachi chapter 3. You're welcome to look at it if you like. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is God speaking through the prophet. He says, Behold, see for yourself. I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This text that we're in here in Luke chapter 2 is the fulfillment of that prophecy. The Lord suddenly came into his temple. The messenger of the new covenant, the one who brings Redemption and salvation and true freedom to his people suddenly came into his temple unannounced as a baby. Now, Simeon's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture except for this account. But extra-biblical Jewish sources tell us that there was a prominent man named Simeon living in Jerusalem at this time. And this is not from extra-biblical Christian sources. This is from extra-biblical Jewish sources. He was the son of Hillel. And he was the father of Gamaliel. Does that name sound familiar? This is who Saul of Tarsus studied under, Gamaliel. And Simeon, the Simeon of Jewish history, was his father. Simeon lost his position in the Sanhedrin... Because he opposed the common opinion of the day of the Jews concerning the temporal kingdom of the Messiah. The Jews were looking for Jesus to come. they, They didn't know it was Jesus, but they were looking for this Messiah to come and raise up an army and drive out the Romans and set Israel up as the world's prominent kingdom. Restore the glory days of David and Solomon. That's what they're looking for. Well, Simeon didn't agree with that. And because of that, he was put out of the, he lost his seat in the synagogue because he didn't go along with the general wisdom of the day. Now, there's no conclusive evidence that these two Simeons are one and the same, but it sure sounds like it to me. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's a common characteristic of God's people in the Old Testament and the New, and that is the Holy Spirit, the agency of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that brings life. The flesh is no help at all. It's always the Spirit who brings life. No one has ever become a believer without the action and agency of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has to move. The Spirit brings life. The Spirit regenerates. The Spirit is the one who makes these dry bones live. The Holy Spirit's upon Simeon. I personally believe that the Old Testament saints had the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't believe there were that many of them. And I also don't believe that... um, 
they, they didn't have the Spirit to the degree that New Testament saints have after Pentecost where the Holy Spirit brings this, uh, this anointing in power to preach the gospel to the nations and, and the, the Spirit goes out and takes the Word of God to the world. That happens at Pentecost, but the Old Testament saints that believed were just like the New Testament saints. They believed because the Holy Spirit applied the Word of God to their hearts, just like He does with us. What does the Holy Spirit do? What does He do? Well, the Bible says He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But you know what He does for the believer? He does exactly what He did with Simeon. He literally leads us to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he applies the Word of God to our hearts, and through that, He leads us to Christ, just like He did with Simeon. And Simeon is a picture of that. He's a picture of the Holy Spirit. He's a type of every believer in that the Holy Spirit leads him to Christ and brings him to the temple at just the right time, on just the right day. It just happens to be when Jesus is there. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the Holy Spirit had revealed to him. How did the Holy Spirit reveal this to him? You think he spoke to him out loud? Could have. But Simeon was a devout and a righteous man. I believe it was through the study of the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures applied by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit had revealed to him. There are lots of... You know, I just read that that prophecy from Malachi a while ago that was concerning Jesus. Well, you know, there's a lot of other prophecies concerning Jesus, too. I began by reading from Galatians, when the fullness of time had come. And we say, well, that's, that. you know, we could... Lots of... People read that verse and we could say, well, that's when God's purpose was. Yes, it was. But did you know that God had given a prophecy concerning that? When the fullness of time would be. He did. And Simeon knew that about 490 years ago, Daniel said in 70 weeks, this Messiah is going to come. That's a paraphrase of what was said, but the point is, he knew the Scriptures. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures applied to his heart, that he was going to see the salvation of God. Let's look at verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, says the Spirit again that's bringing him, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. There are no accidents in God's economy. There's not a one. You know, Justin was talking in the equipping hour about all these thousands of people showing up to hear George Whitfield preach. And they just show up. You know, they didn't have the communications back then that we have now. There wasn't Facebook out there. Twitter feed. Oh, everybody better get over to Allen because George Whitfield's over there preaching. No. Some of those people probably had to leave a day or two ahead of time to get there. But somehow the Lord 
orchestrated that and brought all of those people together to hear this preaching. I heard a preacher one time talking about Pentecost. And, and you know, yes, there were people from all over the world there celebrating the Feast of Pentecost all over the known world. But Peter preaches and 3,000 got saved. Well, for those that don't believe in the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? I heard a preacher say, wasn't it just fortunate and lucky that all 3,000 of those soft-hearted people showed up in the same place at the same time on the same day and Peter was on his A-game, you know. It's ridiculous to think about it that way. There are no accidents. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. And He directs the affairs of this world and the affairs of His people and He brings His people to Christ. We see things from our, from our perspective that are coincidences. Accidents. But Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things after the counsel of His will. All things. Not some things, but all things. Let's look at verse 28. Then he, Simeon, took him, Jesus, into his arms and blessed God. All of you mothers in here, what would you think? You go into this temple and there's thousands of people around and some old man just comes up and takes your baby. Well, that would be something, wouldn't it? This thing is directed by the Holy Spirit. This thing is directed by the Holy Spirit. Not only did Simeon get to see the Lord, but he came into intimate contact with Him. In verse 29, he said, Now, Lord... You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Now we're getting into the freedom part. I said the title of this sermon is True Freedom. Here's where we're going to see it. Simeon blessed God. He blessed God who has fulfilled all his promises according to his word. Let me read you something from 1 Kings. We go way back over to the Old Testament. There's a similar passage to this in Joshua, but I picked this one. First Kings chapter 8. And when you hear some t- TV preacher who is trying to make a lot of money by selling books on eschatology or whatever, and they're talking about all these promises that have yet to be fulfilled to Israel and everything, you could remember this verse. First Kings chapter 8, verse 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. Everything God has ever promised, he has fulfilled. And Paul tells us that all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. And in him is our amen to the glory of God. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Simeon sees this. Now, he says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your servant to depart in peace. Depart in this verse is the same word that Paul used in 2 Timothy 4, 6 when he said, For I am already being poured out 
as the drink offering and the time of my departure has come. It's the same word. It's indicative. It's like, it's like a ship setting sail or a slave released from, from his chains, from his bondage. There's that word. Now let's look at verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And this is why Simeon, this is the heart of it. Simeon is free to depart from this life and he can do it in peace because he has seen the Lord Jesus with the eyes of faith. His eyes have seen the the salvation of God. Matthew Henry said, The eye is not satisfied with seeing till it has seen Christ. Then it is. His eyes were satisfied with seeing because they saw Christ. Death is a departure from the bondage of this temporal world. The only way to truly depart from this world, though, in peace, is to have your eyes fixed on Christ. Then you can agree with Simeon. You can agree with Paul. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's in Philippians 1.21. Simeon, I will say, is a type of every Christian brought to Christ by the Holy Spirit, seeing Him and then clinging to Him. And he's truly free. True Christians... are the most dangerous people in the world. Why do I say that? Because this world has no hold on them. This world has no power over a true Christian. Why does it not have power over them? Because they have seen the salvation of God. They've seen Christ. They're free. They're not enslaved to the lust of the flesh any longer because they've seen something better. They've been freed from their sin. There's a book. It's called The Persecutor. Some of you may have read it. I had never heard of it um, until I was listening to that lecture series I was telling you about. But this book was written by a guy named Sergei Kortikov. And Sergei... The young man growing up in Soviet Russia, he goes to the Naval Academy. And there he is recruited by the KGB to be on an evangelical hit squad. So what they do, this group of burly young men, they go out and they will find home churches. They will find places where people are worshiping God apart from the the state-sanctioned religion. They call them believers. They don't even call them Christians. They call them believers because their faith is so strong that they will meet even though they know that they could be in prison, they can be killed, they can be beat up, and all kinds of things can happen to them. So the job of this hit squad is to go find these home churches, and they'll go in and disrupt the meetings, beat people up, do all of this stuff. They even disrupt a baptism one time. They hear about a baptism down at the river. And they go down and they beat up the congregants and uh, they actually kill the minister. His head hits a rock and he floats down the river. Um, that's what this group does. So, And he becomes the leader of this group. Now they go to a home church one day 
And they're roughing up the congregation, beating them up and working them over. And Sergey spots this really attractive 19-year-old girl. And it just astounds him. What is she doing here in this group of miserable, wretched people? I mean, she, she looks like she could have the world by the tail, but here she is with these believers. So he roughs her up a little bit and tells her not to do that anymore, and they go on. A week or so later, they get word of another church meeting in a home. Well, they go there, and there she is again. So a couple of the guys just get really mad that she didn't listen the first time. So they strap her over a table and take her britches down and beat brutally, brutally beat her backside and her thighs. Thinking that that will take care of the problem. Well, you know what happens a couple of weeks later, they go to bust up another church service and there that girl is again. Worshiping God with the saints. One of the guys in the hit squad is so mad, he's going to kill her. But another guy stops him. He says, leave her alone. She has something we don't have. At the end of Sergei's book, what happened to him, he wrote this book because he he wound up becoming a believer. He wound up defecting, jumping off a ship and swimming ashore in Canada. And he wrote a book about his life and what he had done and how he came to Christ. And he ends the book with, and to Natasha, wherever you are, I want you to know that I'm a believer now, like you. God has forgiven me of my sin, and I hope you can too. Why was Natasha able to risk her life? Why would she do that? Why would she continue to do that after being beaten and threatened, coming within a whisper of being killed? She could have the whole world. This world doesn't have a hold on her, just like it didn't have any hold on Simeon. It's like it didn't have any hold on Paul. This world doesn't have any hold on someone who has seen Christ. He said, Sergei said that he could not get her face out of his mind because of the peace that he saw in her face. Why was that peace there? Because her eyes had seen the salvation of God. That's why it was there. Let me read verses 30 through 32. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Christ brings God's salvation and light to people of all nations. I'm going to go to Isaiah 49. I'm going to wait on you if you'd like to turn there with me because this is important.
I'm going to start reading in verse 5, but my primary emphasis is verse 6. But I'm going to read verse 5 so there's no doubt you understand who this is. This is Jesus speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And now says the Lord who formed me, Jesus is speaking, from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. That's national temporal Israel, Jacob, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So I'm going to stop right there. He's not saying that every living, breathing, genetic descendant of Jacob is going to be saved. He says the preserved ones of Israel, the elect of Israel. Paul says later, not all Israel was Israel, but all of those who are elect, all of those who will believe. That's who he's raised him up to restore and to save. But he says, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Christ came to be the light of the world, not a candle in the Jewish candlestick. He, became, he came to be the son of righteousness for all people. He's the glory of Israel. Christ is the glory of Israel. Moses is not the glory of Israel. Solomon and David weren't the glory of Israel. Some future stone temple is not the glory of Israel. And some future thousand year temporary kingdom that's still going to perish in a temporal world that's still going to burn up is not the glory of Israel. Christ is the glory of Israel. Let's look at verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. They were amazed at these things that were being said about Jesus. And God was preparing them for the future. All of these things, they're for our benefit. They were for his parents' benefit. God was preparing them for what was going to happen. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Well, you can just see how that plays out in the life of Jesus if you know anything about it. The fall and the rise of many in Israel, though the rise is the resurrection. Many in Israel were saved because of this child. Many in Israel will be raised to life on the last day because of this child. But there has also been many who have fallen because of this child. They rejected him. Jesus is the divider and the separator of people. If you're looking for unity apart from Jesus, or apart from truth, if you're looking for unity without truth, you don't need to go looking to Jesus. There's Zero neutrality with Jesus. Listen to his words in Matthew chapter 12. In verse 30. This is Jesus speaking. 
For all of those who would say, well, you know, we don't care about doctrine or theology. We're just unified. We all love each other and we all love Jesus. So we're all going to heaven. Well, let's see what Jesus says. He says, he who is not with me is against me. Anybody that says that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. There's no Jesus in Islam. Well, there is, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not God. He who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality. You're either going to oppose Jesus, and you're going to fall into eternal ruin, or you're going to throw yourself on his mercy, and you're going to be raised on the last day. You're going to be raised on this day. If you throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ right now, it's a resurrection. He is raising you from the dead. And He'll raise you again on the last day. But then He says something interesting to Mary. A sword will pierce your own soul. You know, when I first studied through this, I just thought, well, a sword is going to pierce her soul because he's going to be despised and rejected of men. And that's true. He was despised and rejected of men, and she lived through it with him. And she suffered through it, and this was her son. But there's also some other things that happened. There are some things that Jesus said. There's a story about where Jesus is, uh, and it's in all three Gospels, all three of the synoptic Gospels. There's this story about where Jesus is teaching in a house. There's a great crowd. And Mary and Jesus' brothers come to the house to check on Him. There's even the idea maybe that He might be, they're afraid that He's going to exhaust Himself completely. So they come to check on Him, and they come and they can't get in the house. So somehow word gets in there to Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside looking for him. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks around at the people who he's teaching. He says, these who hear the word of God and do it are my mother and my sister and my brothers. What's he saying there? How would, it, how would that cause a sword to pierce Mary's own soul? This is her little baby boy, according to the flesh. But she's going to have to know him in another way besides that. She can't be saved as the mother of Jesus. She has to be saved as the servant of Jesus who is her Lord, throwing herself at His feet. She has to, as Paul says, even though we have known Christ after the flesh, now we know Him thus no longer. There is a superseding relationship there to her being His mother. Grace does not come through her being His mother. She's not a co-mediatrix of grace like our Catholic friends believe. That relationship had to change for her to a relationship of disciple and Lord. I believe there's a lot of merit to that reading of that text. 
People say they love God. But what they really mean is they love their idea of God. Made after their own image. That's why people love Christmas. You know, everybody loves a baby in the manger. Everybody loves looking at that little baby and saying, oh yeah, isn't it, isn't it wonderful? And we're all going to get presents. This baby was a present to the whole world and, and we'll all just get together and sing Kumbaya. Well, that's, that's fine for the world. But when Jesus comes and you have to deal with His uncompromising light and truth in the flesh, literally God with us, I'll tell you what happens. This whole life, the Gospel of John, they despised Him at every turn. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness because their deeds were evil. No one is neutral toward the Christ of the Bible. Nobody is. You either love Him or you despise Him. You hate Him or you'll crucify Him. But if the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart, you will love Him and you will worship Him. And you'll be free. You will be free because that's what he came to do, was to free his people. That's why he's called the Messiah. Let's look at verses 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. She was a prophetess. And I I don't think she was a prophetess in the sense that she was prophesying new revelation. Thus saith the Lord. I think she was called a prophetess because she's constantly proclaiming the Word of God. That's why she's a prophetess. The name Anna means gracious. She was the daughter of Phanuel. Matthew, Matthew Henry again. Matthew Henry suggests that the name of her father is stated here to make us think of Jacob's Peniel. In Genesis 32:30, if you remember that text, that's where Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night long. And he named the place Peniel because he had come face to face with God and lived. And Jesus is the only place where we come face to face with God. We cannot approach to God apart from Jesus. She was an 84-year-old widow. She'd spent most of her life serving God and looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Kind of a similar vein as Simeon. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. She's looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when she sees Christ, what happens? The Holy Spirit shows her who He is. Now, I want you to think about something about Simeon and Anna. Everybody else... The world, those who see things according to the flesh, they see a little baby. That's all they see. But when Simeon sees Jesus, he sees the Messiah. He sees the consolation of Israel. When Anna sees Jesus, she sees the Messiah, the redemption of Jerusalem. Why? 
The Holy Spirit applying the Word of God. The Holy Spirit reveals. Why does people sit in a church service like this and some people, they hear words, they hear stories. But some people see Jesus. Why? Because the, where the Lord is, where the Spirit is, there's freedom. And the Spirit of the Lord applies the Word of God to the hearts of His people and sets them free. And as I said before, you know, I'm going to switch gears for a second. God never leaves Himself without a remnant in this world. This is one of the hopes that I have of Simeon and Anna. And it says that Anna went on speaking the Word of God to those who were looking like her. She went on to speak of Jesus to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. That means there were more. It wasn't just Simeon and Anna. There were more who were looking to Christ. There were more who were looking to God's provision. So there was a remnant. And God always keeps a remnant. No matter how dark the world looks. But... The other thing that I want to say is the hope of God's people is never about this temporal world. It's not about this. Once Simeon had laid his eyes on Christ, there was nothing left. He said, now I can depart in peace. Why does he say that? Because there's nothing left in this world to hold him. There's nothing left here for him to hold him. God's people have one great theme. Reconciliation with God in Christ. The redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You know, if you look into Jesus for wealth, you don't love God. You love wealth. If you're looking to Jesus to bring you good health, you don't love God, you love good health. If you're looking to Jesus to fix your marriage, you see the theme. If you're looking to Jesus to improve this temporal world, it's not Jesus you love, it's this temporal world. Now, Jesus does improve. Don't get me wrong. The gospel improves all of these things. The gospel will definitely improve your marriage, if you believe it. And the gospel definitely will improve the circumstances that we live in, in this nation, and in this world, if we believe it, and if we trust in Christ, and we look to Him, and we live our lives that way, it's going to improve this world. But that's not our aim. This world is going to perish. That's what the Bible tells us. But... He will not perish. He's eternal and His Word stands forever. If we're looking, I I say this for encouragement because we live in a time right now where a lot of us are worried about our freedoms. A lot of people are worried about their freedoms. We, We see things going on in our government and it seems like the world is turned upside down. You know, it always seems like the world is turned upside down. It always does. 
to somebody. The church father Augustine wrote a book, and it's massive, called The City of God because his world was turned upside down. The church was going into apostasy, and Rome was getting ready to collapse, and so he writes a whole book about it. The world is always turned upside down. Christians are not enslaved by that. We don't have to be enslaved by the circumstances of this life. When this life, when this world is going crazy, when we don't know if the government is going to say that we can't gather and start putting some of us in prison like Pastor Coates up in Canada, and it could happen. I pray that it doesn't, but it could. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to fight with carnal weapons. I'm not going to go engage according to the arm of the flesh. I'm going to keep preaching this truth. That God is sovereign, that Christ is Lord, and that He came to save His people. And if you'll trust in Him, He will set you free from your slavery to the elements of this world. That is what our hope is. Family, health, money, patriotism, all of these things, are, they're not bad. But they aren't what the Word became flesh for. He became flesh to set us free from our bondage to sin and death. God is the end of the gospel. Reconciliation to God in Christ. And God's people want God. That's what we want. If you're truly in Christ, test yourself with these things. What is your end? Do you want to draw near to God in Christ? Or do you want somebody to fix the government? What do you really want? I want to leave you with a couple of questions. If you could have everything you wanted... If you could have your absolute heart's desire, what would it be? Would it be an improved earth? Would it be no pollution and good government and long life for everybody and no abortion and all of these things? If you could, if you could have your heart's desire, what would it be? All of those things are nice. I'm not knocking them, but it, is that what it would be? Or would you be with Paul? Would you rather depart and be with Christ? He said, for me, that's the best. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the things of this world. And God will give you the desires of your heart. That's not what it says, does it? Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Simeon was delighted in the Lord. And he saw the Lord. And he was satisfied. He was content. May the Lord give us the grace to see his salvation. And look to him and delight in him. And find all of our treasures and all of our wealth in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for 
your grace. Thank you for your salvation that you brought to us in Christ. Help us to see Him. Help us to be those whom this world cannot control, who are dangerous. Because we're looking to Him alone. We have no fear of this world because He is the end of our lives, not anything that we can grasp. Lord, be glorified in our worship. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.